Good morning, church. You can open your Bibles with me to Job chapter 9, and we are on the sixth foundation in the foundation series, and the topic this morning is salvation. So let's pray and ask God to be here and help us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the words that we've just sung. Lord, I thank you personally that I once was lost and now have been found, that I was blind and now I see. Thank you, Lord, that this is your doing. We thank you, Lord, as well, that you are a sovereign God. It's not by man's design that we are on the sixth foundation today, happen to be talking about salvation, but it's by your design. And that here this morning there are perhaps hard hearts that need to be softened, that there is pride that needs to be humbled, that there are eyes that need to be opened, and there are those of us who need to be reminded. And so, Lord, we just invite you to do your work in our hearts this morning. We pray that as we turn to your word that you would speak to us this morning from Scripture, speak to us this morning, and give each one of us uh, what you have for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be clear and articulate. I pray, Lord, that you would be with me and that you would speak through me. Lord, that anything that I would say that would edify and encourage this congregation, that all glory would be given to you. And, Lord, that you would silence my lips from saying anything that's not of you this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a big topic this morning, topic of salvation. And when Sundar asked me to speak and we kind of worked out which weekend I'd be speaking and he gave me the topic of salvation, there was a conversation that came immediately to mind that I uh, was privileged enough to be a part of a couple of years ago. And I was with a friend of mine who's a very gifted evangelist. And the two of us were talking to this young university student And uh, he was in his early 20s, and we were kind of talking to him and and trying to steer the conversation towards the gospel and give ourselves an opportunity to share the gospel with this young man. And as we talked to him, he's a very intelligent guy, uh, much to his fault, because uh, he had no concept of of Christianity, no uh, upbringing in the faith. He was an atheist and uh, very proud to be an atheist. And as we talked to him about sin and as we talked to him about salvation, Um, he began to get a little agitated and uh, began to say how arrogant and how assuming it is for Christians to think that he needs to be saved from anything. And he went on to say that as he looks around at the world around him, he's not a murderer, he's not a rapist, he's not a cheater, he's not a liar, he's not all these things. And so if there is a God, if he's wrong about in his atheism, if there is a God, when he stands before God at the end of his life, he will assume that God will look at him and look at some other people and say, well, he's, he's not that bad. He didn't kill anybody, he didn't cheat on anybody, he didn't do anything too, too bad. And so he hoped that whatever God there was, if there was a God at the end of his life, he would be forgiving that he would be able to show mercy on this young man, even though he didn't believe in God, didn't trust in God, but just thought, I'm a good enough person that maybe I'll get by. And 
it was a very disheartening conversation as you see, as I saw what it looks like for somebody to approach the topic of salvation from a completely wrong perspective. Coming to the topic of salvation, looking at himself and trying to justify himself and explain to us that he's actually a pretty good person and not really in need of being saved by anything or anyone. It's the position of the world as they look at the topic of salvation from a selfish worldview. And they look at themselves and compare themselves to others and think that maybe they measure up. Maybe they're above the curve. Maybe when they get to the end of their life, the good things they've done will outweigh the bad things that they've done. And hopefully that'll be enough. It's a difficult and it's a destructive worldview. This morning as we talk about salvation, the word salvation means to deliver, to save, to preserve from danger or destruction. And it was this thought, this idea that this young man needed to be saved from anything that was so offensive to him. And the question before us this morning as we explore this topic of salvation is what does the Bible say about salvation? What does salvation save us from? Why is it important? If God provides salvation, how does he do it? And why does he do it? These are big topics that... We hope to get some answers from the scriptures about this morning. And this question, this struggle, this idea of salvation and whether or not we need to be saved, and if so, what from, is an age-old question. So I had you turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 9, one of the oldest verses, or one of the oldest chapters, one of the oldest people, one of the oldest stories that we have on record. And he struggles with this topic of salvation. In in verse 2 of chapter 9, he asks, how can somebody be counted righteous before God? That's the topic that's on hand. How, in the end, is somebody saved when they stand before God at the end of their life? And so, let's read, starting in verse 27. Job says, If I say I will forget my complaints, I will change my expression and smile, I still dread all of my sufferings. For I know you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with cleansing powder, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it stands now, I cannot. What we see here in Job's struggle is somebody approaching the topic of salvation from a completely different angle. He doesn't start with just looking at himself and comparing himself to people around him and thinking, maybe I measure up. But he's starting with his concept of God. And he has a much different concept of God than the young man that I was talking to several years ago. His concept of God is that God is so unlike me. He's so different from me. In fact, Job says that there's terror when he thinks about God that frightens him. He has a concept of God as this big, creator, powerful, almighty God. And when he starts with that concept of God, the idea of whether or not he needs to be saved takes on a completely different meaning. 
he recognizes that there is something wrong with me in the sight of a holy God. There is something wrong with me when I look at God as the almighty creator, holy, righteous one that he is. In fact, there's something so wrong with me that I can't even meet with him in court. I can't even present my case to try and tell that I can't make my case to him because he's not like me. We can't confront each other in court. Job is describing what C.S. Lewis coins a desperate dilemma. The desperate dilemma is my sinfulness in the presence of God's holiness. This creates a dilemma for Job as he recognizes that even if I washed myself, even if I tried to make myself good, there's no way that I could be good enough to stand before a holy God. His concept of God is that God is Huge, magnificent. He created the world and he created it in such a way that when I am in the depths of my depravity, I'm acting in a way that displeases the holy God. See, he starts with this concept of God. Deuteronomy 32 tells us what God is like, tells us of God's condition, and that is, verse 39 says, See now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death. I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. God describes himself as all-powerful, as all-knowing, as the sovereign God who's in control of all things. And this creates a dilemma for Job because he sees himself as Paul describes humanity in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. See, Job sees himself in this condition. He sees himself as somebody who is completely poverty-stricken in spirit. He has nothing good in and of himself to offer God because he starts with God. The Bible describes God as light, and so often we don't understand how my sinfulness doesn't work in the midst of God's holiness. And it's because God is described just as light. If you think about it in terms of a dark room or a dark closet where there's no light, there's no windows, there's not even a crack underneath the door, and it's just full of darkness. When that door is open and light comes in, the darkness can no longer exist, right? Because the, the light comes into it and fills every crevice with light. Light and darkness just don't mix. And this is, the, this is the dilemma that Job is seeing, that the sinfulness that I see inside myself, if I'm really honest with myself, the sinfulness inside of me is incompatible with a holy God. The two cannot exist together. And this is a dilemma. It's a dilemma for us who want to be known by our Heavenly Father. It's a dilemma for us who want to be known by our Maker. And it's a dilemma for God who the Bible describes desires that all would be saved. And yet, how can he, a righteous and holy God, dismiss our sin? How can he allow our sin to go unpunished? 
It's a dilemma that Job was so afraid of that it caused him to cry out for a mediator. If only there was somebody who could bring us both together. If only there was someone who could make my sinfulness compatible with his holiness. Then you could take my rod, God's rod from me and I wouldn't be so afraid. But as it stands now, I still am. It's a dilemma. And it's a dilemma that only God could fix. Anselm was an archbishop of Canterbury in the 12th century, and he, talking about this desperate dilemma as he recognized his own sinfulness in the presence of God's holiness, he said that the debt that he owed was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. And so the desperate dilemma, the desperate dilemma that we are all faced with as we are truthful about what's inside of us and the, the, the hideousness and the darkness of our own sin and the presence of God's holiness as we recognize that what we're in need of is a divine rescue. And that divine rescue, and Brother already shared it this morning, isn't from a religion, it isn't from an institution, it isn't from a place, but it's from a person. From the person of Jesus. And in the Gospels we get this Amazing look at, at who this Jesus was. He walked around confronting the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time. He was bold. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He was courageous. He was full of authority. But this morning as we contemplate what it means that Jesus Christ is the one who provided the divine rescue for our dilemma, I want to take you to a different depiction of Jesus. In Mark chapter 14, I think we see Jesus in a way that we don't see him anywhere else in the Gospels. He's not the, the bold, courageous, authoritative Savior that we've gotten used to. We see a scene that frightens us. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. It's a different depiction of Jesus that we see in the garden. He's worried. He's afraid. And the question is why? What was it that was so frightening to Jesus that we see this different side of him? This Jesus vulnerable for the first time. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. What cup is Jesus referring to as he's come to be our divine rescue to the dilemma that we're all in? There's a cup that he's afraid of. What cup is Jesus referring to? I think we get the answer in Jeremiah and in Isaiah. Jeremiah 25 verse 15 says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. 
When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Isaiah 51 says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. What worried Jesus, what troubled Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is the prospect that in order to provide a divine rescue for our desperate dilemma was that he had to drink the cup of God's wrath. Because, as we've said, God's holiness and our sinfulness can't coexist. As a good and a righteous God, he has to hate sin. And so all of the wrath that he has for all of the sinfulness, past, present, and future, is stored up in this cup. And Jesus knew that was his cup to drink when he was going to be nailed to the cross. It wasn't the physical pain of the cross. It wasn't the embarrassment of being crucified publicly. It wasn't what the guards were going to do to him. It wasn't the mocking of the crowds that Jesus was so afraid of. It was drinking the cup of God's wrath towards sin. God's wrath towards the sin that you and I have committed, that Jesus did not commit. In that garden, Jesus had every right to look up and with a tearful eye say, this isn't my cup, this is your cup. You've sinned, I haven't. This is your cup to drink. But he didn't. He said, not my will, but your will be done. It's amazing to me that he asked the Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And at any time when I am tempted to doubt God's love for me, I think about how God so loved me, that God so loved the world, that in that moment when Jesus said, take this cup from me if you can, the Father was silent to his son's plea. Father was silent to his son's plea to take the cup from him. And Jesus was made to drink the cup. My sin made it necessary for God to pour out all of his wrath and crush his own son, who was nailed to the cross that I richly deserve to be on. That's what love costs God. The crushing of his own son. And it's the only way to solve the divine dilemma. And so as I sat with this young man talking about the prospect of salvation and he compared himself to others saying that I think compared to some other people I measure up, I think maybe I'm not that bad. After making his case, he arrogantly sat back in his chair and folded his arms and says, what do you think that I need to be saved from? And my friend, who's much better in situations like this than I am, had a very good answer. And he said, young man, what you need to be saved from is God. And that's the big idea of salvation. And salvation is God saving us from himself. We're saved from our sin. We're saved from ourselves. We're saved from hell. But ultimately, Jesus was sent to earth to be put forward as a propitiation for our sin, to satisfy the wrath of God towards our sin. Jesus didn't commit the sin. We committed the sin. And Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute, 
bearing God's wrath towards our sin. And I know as we think of a loving God that sometimes His wrath isn't an attribute that we like to focus on. But I would say that unless you understand wrath, you cannot be amazed by grace. Only when we truly understand what we've been saved from can we truly have gratitude that we've been saved. The one from whom we needed to be saved was the one who did the saving. And that to me is amazing, that the most offended party in the entire um, storyline of our sinfulness is God. Sin most offends God. And God, recognizing that as a holy God, He could not let sin go unpunished, knowing that there was a furious, righteous wrath burning towards our sin, put on flesh, became a man so that he could pay the debt that man owed. The one from whom we needed to be saved was the one who saved us. What a glorious thing that God has done for us. Romans 5, verses 8 and 9 summarize it so well. Paul says, But God shows his love for us, that in that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so our desperate dilemma is reacted to by a divine rescue. And something wonderful happens. C.S. Lewis calls the great exchange. The great exchange is this, a cup of wrath for a cup of salvation. Paul describes it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so C.S. Lewis describes, Jesus gets our sin and in turn God's wrath and we get his righteousness and in turn his inheritance. Which seems like a really, really good deal for me. What a wonderful thing God has done for us. And so as we allow the truth of what salvation is, and as we allow the truth that we needed to be saved from a righteous and a holy God because of our sinfulness, the question becomes, how do we respond to it? How does this truth, how does this foundation affect the way that we live our lives? I think it's two ways. I think we need to allow the gospel to get in, and we need to get the gospel out. When I say get the gospel in, I think so often that we as Christians think that this idea of Jesus dying on the cross, this idea of God saving us from the wrath of God, that this is kind of the primary stuff. This is what got us in the doors. This is the stuff that saved us, and now that we're Christians, we move on to other doctrines. And I think that that's not true. I think that when Paul said that he's convinced to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified, that Paul was completely enthralled, completely captured by one moment in history, and that was Christ on the cross and what it meant for him. He was unable to move on. He was unable to get over that. It's something that we continually as Christians work into our lives lest we forget the wonderful thing that God has done for us. There's a wonderful story that I think helps us understand this or help me just kind of grasp 
the truth of this for me. There's a story by Ernest Gordon, and it happened in World War II. He was a British captive in a Japanese prison camp in Burma. There's a movie called To End All Wars that's based on his experience, and he was part of the prisoners of war who constructed the railroad of death, this, uh, this railroad that the prisoners of war were made to construct. Over 16,000 of them died working on this railroad. And he was describing his experience there. He was in the camp one day and they had finished working on the railroad for the day and they were just about to be ushered back to their cells. And as was the custom at the end of every day, the guards would line them all up and they would count... <clears throat> They would count all of the tools to make sure that none of the tools were missing in case any of the prisoners would use them to try and escape. And so they counted all of the tools only to discover that there was one shovel missing. And with all of the British prisoners lined up, this guard just started going crazy, asking where the shovel was and who had the shovel and whoever stole the shovel to step forward. And he started going irate as nobody was taking responsibility for this. He started shouting more and saying, step forward and take your punishment, whoever it was. Nobody stepped forward. And so he pulled out the gun out of his holster and cocked it and yelled, all die. And around him, all of the soldiers, all of the Japanese soldiers pulled their guns up and pointed them at this lineup of prisoners. And again, he shouted, all die. And one man stepped forward. Before the firing squad fired and he said, I did it, I took the shovel. Without a question and without another word, the guard bludgeoned him to death in front of all of the other prisoners. Ernest Gordon describes what it was like watching his friend beaten in front of him by a deranged guard and then him and his friends taking the lifeless corpse back to try and give it a proper burial. And as they were bringing their friend's corpse out of the puddle of blood, the shovels were recounted only to discover that there was never a shovel missing, that they miscounted. And to hear Ernest talk about the deep level of gratitude that him and his fellow comrades experienced knowing that this man stepped forward, not having stolen the shovel, taking that punishment so that they all wouldn't die. He said he couldn't put to words the gratitude that he felt. The soldiers, when they got back, treated that soldier who gave his life for them. They they opened up a foundation for his family and put his kids through college. I mean, there's no way to repay that kind of gratitude. But the difference is, is that in our case, we don't face death from a deranged guard. In fact, in my case, the shovel was missing. We are guilty. We have sinned. We have offended a holy God. And we don't face death by a deranged sinner. We face the furious wrath of a holy God. And the only one who didn't deserve his wrath stepped forward as my substitute and died for me. Getting the gospel in means that we live in the wake of this truth in every day, where every day we wake up feeling gratitude for this wonderful thing that God has done for us. Every day we wake up living in the light that we are a people who have been saved by sovereign grace, not because of anything that we did to deserve it, but because of 
God's divine plan to rescue us from his wrath. I also think that we have a responsibility to get the gospel out. To quote C.S. Lewis one more time, he said, you've never met a mere mortal. He goes on to explain that the people that we work with, the people that we pass on the street, the people that we rub shoulders with every day will spend eternity somewhere. And that each person we meet is immortal, either an everlasting splendor or an everlasting terror. And God has sovereignly declared that the way in which he reaches lost people is through the proclamation of his gospel. That the gospel is God's power unto salvation. We are his ambassadors. God makes his appeal to the people that he wants to reach through us. There are people that Christ died for that you and I have the opportunity to share that truth with. How can we let anybody that we love go by? We all have friends and family members, loved ones who don't know Christ. We don't know how much time we have with them. We don't know how much time they have. But what we do know is that the wrath of God is resting on them. But Jesus Christ was sent as a propitiation for our sins. To appease the wrath of God for them. We carry that message as Christ's ambassadors. And we have a responsibility to view every person that we see on a day-to-day basis as somebody who will spend eternity somewhere. And we carry with us the most wonderful message in the history of mankind. That Job's desperate cry for a mediator has been answered. That that mediator is Jesus Christ. He came and he died on a cross for our sins as our substitute. So that we can know and love and be in fellowship with our creator. What What a wonderful thing God has done for us. The young man that I continue to talk to, I've lost track of. His name is Tyler, and you can pray with him along with all of the people that you know who aren't saved. But the truth is, encountering people who are so lost in their arrogant pride that they don't think that they need to be saved from anything reminds me of where I was. As you think about when you, where you were and what you were like when Christ got a hold of your life, recognize that there's no heart that's too hard. That there's no person too rebellious. In Luke chapter 14, there's a rich young ruler that comes before Jesus and says, What must I do to obtain eternal life? He's asking this question. What can I do to be saved? What's the point of salvation and how can I get it? And Jesus tells him that there are several things that he can do. And like this young man, he responds arrogantly and says, I'm pretty good. I do all that stuff. And then Jesus tells him something that he won't be willing to do. He says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And he walks away disheartened because it says he had very many possessions. And Jesus goes on to say that it's easier for a or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And though we often think about that story in terms of earthly riches, 
and how earthly riches can sometimes get in the way of our salvation. His disciples ask a question that then broadens the story to salvation in general. And they said, then who can be saved? And you remember Jesus' answer? With man it's impossible. But with God all things are possible. We have to recognize that though there are so many of us who are still in that desperate dilemma, we here have been saved by grace. We know about the divine rescue that Jesus has been sent to take away the wrath of God. And so, every person that we know, every person that we come in contact with, salvation is possible through God. Prayerfully and through the proclamation of the gospel, let's get out this wonderful message that there is salvation, that there is, save, there is saving power from the wrath of God. That there is a mediator. Job cried out for him thousands of years before Jesus' feet ever touched the earth. And God answered that cry and sent Christ as our mediator. The one who can have his hands on both of us. Who can bring together a holy God and a sinful man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for salvation. Lord, we thank you that though we are sinful, though we are prideful, that you sent your Son to die for us. What a wonderful thing that you have done for us. May we not take this doctrine for granted. May we not take our knowledge for granted. May our lives be transformed by this truth day in and day out. May we constantly be reminded that we are a people saved by grace and that we don't owe this to anything of ourselves we don't owe this to an institution or a place we owe this to a person Christ in Gethsemane willing to drink the cup that I richly deserved let me live each and every day in the light of that truth and let me have the eyes to see people as people who will spend eternity somewhere. May I take re my responsibility to be your ambassador seriously. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to focus the benediction on sending you out to proclaim the good news. But before I do that, I want to remind you what Pastor Nathaniel said. That only Jesus Christ can be that mediator between us and God's cup of wrath. However, Jesus also called us to take up our cross daily and follow him. So we too need to lay down our lives. So with that, I bless you to be the salt and light in this dark world, wherever you live and wherever you work, to let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In this way, God will change people's mourning into dancing, sorrow into joy, and destiny to eternal life. Go in peace. Amen.